welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks and the geeks replace each other's divots. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and as you might have guessed, that is a golf joke, which is appropriate because today our guest will be Kevin Streelman, a professional golfer on the PGA Tour, a deeply devoted Christian, and a loving father, husband, and friend. Now, this may not ring true to those who believe that watching golf on television is like watching flies fart, as some of the women in my family like to say, but there's an allure to professional golf that few who are uninitiated truly understand. The money is eye-popping, that's easy to see, so even the casual passerby can see what the fuss is all about. But taking up this sport is not for the faint of heart. Buy yourself some clubs and you risk your time, money, and maybe even your dignity as you try to slowly chase a small white ball 7,000 yards for what might become half of your day. Did you know that an 18-hole round of golf can take up to five hours to play? But it's not just your dignity. It's also, potentially at least, your sanity that you put at risk playing this game. The men and women who win this game are not always athletes in the classic sense of the word. They are masters of the mind, amateurs and Buddhist monks, if you will. Many golfers do not jump high. They do not run fast. In fact, many do not do anything with any speed at all, which is what we typically expect from our highest paid athletes. Truth be told, some of them have dad bods, which may, for some, make the money they earn seem that much more impressive. So wait, you're telling me I just have to practice hitting that little ball over and over and I can get rich too? But don't be fooled, as my guest today, the first professional athlete to join us on the show, will make abundantly clear the road to professional success in golf has many bumps along the way and requires great discipline and great dedication. Kevin has some compelling things to say about his journey to golf's grandest stage, the mental health of professional athletes, and why this game of golf, this slow chase, continues to beguile him, but not consume him. Kevin attended Duke University and turned pro in 2007, and since then, he has won two PGA Tour events and placed in the top 10 of 47 tournaments. He's known on the tour as a precise player who rarely misses a cut, And off the course, he leverages his platform as a professional athlete to help those who are less fortunate. Kevin, welcome, and thank you so much for being my guest on the Power of Sports podcast. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. First of all, how are you doing today? Doing good. It's good to just get home and get into normal life stuff. And I'm gone so much, especially this last stretch. I think I was gone 13 out of 15 weeks and getting back from England for the British was just one of those travel days. (laughs) It It was difficult getting home, but... Sure. Finally did. Finally got back uh, on the sleep uh, cycles, and it was just fun. Like my daughter had a few friends over for a sleepover last night, so I was doing floors lava with them this morning and getting them donuts and all the good stuff that I miss a lot of as much as I travel. So I'm just really enjoying taking this week and next week off, and then I get serious again at the Wyndham and get ready for our playoffs. Yes, and is that travel a big part of the? The job. It would seem to me that it would be. It's honestly all I know. Since I was 18 years old, I, I went to Duke University and traveled on that golf team the majority of the year and then turned pro right after I graduated at 22, now 20 years ago, and I've been on the road pretty much ever since. So I pretty much average about 30 weeks a year gone. And it is what it is. It is getting more difficult when now my son realizes I'm leaving and mm-hmm. his idea and the tears start, his tears and my tears. And it, that's something I struggle with, to be honest, but it is just a part of the job and I don't plan on doing it forever, but right now we're having a ton of fun and having a, had a good summer this year, both on the course and off the course. Been, been yes, I understand that. And congratulations on all that success. I want my first question to be about this 
issue of mental health, which is a big issue in the news right now. And the way that I want to start the question might be a little bit strange, but I played the other day. I don't play much, but I was walking the local course. I had this 30-pound bag of metal on my shoulders, and I'm slashing divots out of the earth and you know, penciling in these depressingly large numbers into my card. <laughs> and for amateurs like myself, it's this adage that golf is a good walk spoiled is true, sometimes very true. And uh, But I wonder what it's like for you as a professional, because your livelihood is on the line. Do you enjoy walking these long courses that you play? And, and if so, what is it exactly that you enjoy? I love the competition. I always have since I was a kid, and I always liked it being on me. I liked that mental pressure and that mental, that edge of looking mano a mano at someone and saying, all right, you or I are going to win. Let's mm. have at it. That's why I, I played team sports up until high school, but I went away from them when I had the opportunity to play. I did mostly tennis and golf in high school. Mm -hmm. and I just love that part of sport. And it is the most mental game there is. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. It's clearly there one day and it's clearly not the next. And with swimming, I think you train and get to a point where you say you can swim a 30 second race. And I think well, you're not going to be perfectly there every day, but you do the right training and, and the right preparation. You're probably going to be around that maximum speed day by day. Through the golfers, we know there's one day I can shoot a 62 and the next day shoot 80. It's like yes. two different, it's two different universes on those two days. As far as the mental health, I've never viewed it as a mental health game. I just think it's a mentally crazy game. And it's okay. just perfect. And that's part of the game. I think the mental health becomes an issue when your identity is wrapped in the results of your game. Hmm. And that's, to me, the difference. And clearly, when our livelihood is based on it, that's all included in what we do, clearly. But that being said, my full worth and identity as a man is not based on what that golf score is. And that frees me to be great at the sport. That makes sense. It, it completely does. Mm -hmm. But it's so die, do or die and so much pressure. And, and clearly social media is having a huge input on these younger athletes. Because now people, if you allow it to get your attention, can really hurt your feelings. But mm -hmm. silly things that people you would never talk to or know in any other universe, except the social media universe, are able to say something that could affect you for hours, if not days, if not weeks at a time, just by being mean. And it seems like that, like people have grasped onto that for too long and give too much credence and too much authority to these random people just saying silly, mean things. And that, that and they're allowing that to affect their performance. And so I think the athletes need help as far as dealing with that sort of, I'd say, access to their inner circle and or to a degree of just not looking at it. You know, so it's, in a way, it's hard not to because a lot of times our contracts are based or requirements as far as social media posts or like allowing access to practice rounds or training sessions, et cetera. And so all of a sudden you let people into that um, circle and, and things can be said that can, can affect things. But for the most part, gosh, I mean, my wife never got onto social media and she... I just see her, <laughs> it's just a cleaner <laughs> existence. Like she doesn't reach for Twitter or Instagram. She doesn't, it's just, it's about her family and her children and her faith. And it's the way I think it should be. But I, I understand where younger athletes are struggling with this. And you do need training or understanding to know that you, you, to perform at your highest level, you can't allow those outside 
noises to affect your performance or affect who you are as a person because it's it's really just it's really just noise that that doesn't need to be there if you don't let it in yes thank you very much kevin for that that candid response and it sounds to me like what you're saying is is you're able to separate your yourself or your identity from the role that you play as a professional golfer and that helps you to to manage this pressure i wouldn't say i'm perfect at it but i work i work diligently at it yes i think it's extremely important to to be great at that. And I think the great ones in the past have been, and that's that sweet spot of you're trusting your training, you're trusting your perform, your preparation, you're trusting everything that's gone into what's about to happen in this arena. And when you can just let go of the results and know that they're going to take care of themselves, then you're able to fly. Hmm. You're weighted down by this. Oh, I have to win. Oh, I have to get a gold. Oh, I have to finish this tournament. Oh, I have to, win the masters. Oh, I have to, have to, have to, you're not going to perform. That's not how you train. So that's where, and look, and look at this too. That's also separates the greats from the goods. Tiger <laughs> turned it on to a whole different avenue. He wasn't caring. He didn't care what people wrote about him on social media. He didn't care what people put about him in the regular media. Mm-hmm. He was about absolutely taking us and kicking our tails <laughs> on Sunday when it came down. <laughs> he was going to get that trophy. And that's a different, level of the dude right there and a dudette like when they're in that place they're not going to lose and so is it mentally challenging heck yeah it's mentally challenging but he was able to get to a place where he couldn't have let there were no outside forces affecting him in that arena in that moment and made him who he is hmm. that's fascinating and it makes me think there's like a, a different kind of zone everybody always talks about being in the zone when you're playing a sport or playing music or whatever it is but what you're suggesting i think is that there's a zone that also requires shutting out all that noise that you talk about from various kinds of media. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I'd say it's a sweet spot. What I the best example for me is what I did at Hartford in 2014, and it, it ended up being I birdied eight out of ten holes, birdied the last seven, and I one putted ten holes in a row. Like I, I've never done anything like that. In it's my incredible. Life. Ten in a row, and I didn't realize it in the moment. Like I was just I was having fun. I wasn't worried about winning the tournament. I was just like I was just thankful for the really the opportunity I'd missed four or five cuts in a row going into that. So I, I was just in a sweet spot mentally, as far as just like gratitude and thankfulness and being very present in that moment. And all of a sudden this like crazy, pretty much perfect golf happened because of that mental perspective. Like that has to be first in this whole deal. Mm-hmm. If I, as soon as I made my second birdie, if I was like, Oh my gosh, I made two in a row. I've one putted three holes in a row. Guess what? That third one probably wasn't going to happen. So it also, also wouldn't happen if I was further up on the leaderboard. I probably would have been looking more at the leaderboard and, and, it, and probably would have had a little more mental kind of realization of what was happening. But in the moment, I was so far back and I was just enjoying my walk with my caddy and Nick Watney was my buddy and, and it just happened. And that's the mental, I think, place you got to be to be at your best. And the best ones do that more regularly than the rest of us. That's fascinating. And I really, you saw me smiling, I'm sure there, but I love that comment about gratitude because first of all, I think gratitude is an incredible thing and an important part of life, but I also think it probably takes you out of your mind and thinking about yourself and your success and your failure and all of that kind of stuff. And it makes you think about the other people who are around you and in your case, your faith and the things that, that drive you to be successful. So I wonder where all this comes from, Kevin, if I can go back to the beginning and ask, what were your experiences like first playing any sports? And then of mm-hmm. course, golf. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I just, I grew up in the Midwest and near, near Chicago and it just was a, a town and a community where 
we were outside until dark. Like the only rule is mom said, you have to be home when the streetlights come on. And so we'd go out and play. We'd go out and play, shoot hoops one day. We'd go to the woods and play guns the next day. We'd go and play football the next day. This was play. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and sports just came quickly to me. My brother was a good athlete. My dad was a really good athlete. My mom was more into music. And my sister was more into music. And I got a little bit of both. I, I love music. I see you have a guitar there. I play a little I, guitar. I do. Chris told me, yes. I'm an amateur guitarist too. I love yeah. guitar. What, what cool. kind of guitar do you play? I play, I started in high school as a huge Dave Matthews nerd. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning like Crash and... Lover Laid Down would help me get like chicks in college and that didn't work so well. So <laughs> it's now turned in, I do a lot of, like, I'm big in a 10th Avenue North and Need to Breathe and some more Christian bands. And I lead some fellowship out on the tour and I played at our church here a little bit. And so I, I just, I love it. It's like a total release from golf. You don't think about how my putting is or how my short game is or how I'm driving the ball or whatnot. But to me, it's, we are talking about that mental place to be. It's like when you're, playing a song and you know it so well and it's like you're thinking about how to go from a g chord to a c chord to an e minor or something it just happens and it's just mm-hmm. in the flow. and that's clearly the top guitarists the top drummers it's they're not thinking about how they're going to where they're going to get to they're just enjoying the ride of getting there enjoying that roller coaster that's the sweetness that can happen when you're properly in that mental place of just flow and I think music's a great like practice area to get into that moment. To look at it as like a dance, to look at it as like a, a song and, and a journey. And all of a sudden it becomes a lot less analytical and a lot less kind of, you know, just moment by moment, it just becomes a dance. And that's, hmm. that's a big spot to perform in. I don't care what you're doing. Yeah. And do you see overlap between your performance in music and your performance on the course? I won in 2013 at Tampa. My whole, I had a musical swing thought with my putter. As a metronome, I was at 73 beats per moment, per minute. And as a song that was at that, and I just was, that was my routine. I look up to the beat, back to the beat, practice stroke to the beat, back to the beat, and then bam, and strike it to the beat. But it awesome that week. It's super uh, cool. Yeah, that is super of- cool. Huh. Have you come across any... Um, other golfers who do something similar to that? Or is that pretty unique? I don't know, to be honest. We don't really share a lot of our secrets with other golfers. <laughs> <laughs> should, should I edit this part out then? <laughs> well, that's really interesting. You mentioned your family members being athletes. And what was it? I know you contributed an essay to a book called The Golfing with Dad, which was published back in 2011. And I actually bought that this week when I found out about it and I bought it for my dad. But uh, what, what about it? golf? It makes it such a great family game. Yeah, it's, that's what it was for me. My mom and dad taught me the game, started me in the game. I was 10 years behind my brother and sister. I say it was an accident. My mom says a pleasant surprise. But they're, <laughs> they're out of the house and in college when I started picking up the game. And that was our summers. Was We never could afford a private club, but we would go to public golf courses all over the Chicagoland area. We would get twilight rates. We'd play golf till dark. We'd run, grab a quick dinner, and then go to school the next morning. And then in the afternoon... We grew up in a course called Cantini and Arrowhead Golf Courses right in Wheaton. And we'd play there as much as I could during the summers. And then you put the clubs down in uh, November just because of obviously the Chicago winters. But I think that was good for me, too. These kids today specialize so young. And I see it here where I live now in Arizona where the weather's it's sunny for 12 months a year. They're out there. They're out there nonstop. It's just like you get no break. Your body doesn't get a break. Um I, I just get afraid of burnout for a lot of these kids. I've seen really good players not want to touch a club after they get out of college because they're just so done with the game. 
And I felt fortunate that Chicago, I could take those breaks. And when I did go to college, I could focus on my craft a little more and became more of a profession quicker than it was. I wasn't an All-American. I wasn't winning a bunch of tournaments as an amateur, even playing in U.S. amateurs or anything like that. But by the time I got 25, 26, 27, I was getting pretty good. And I was also excited to keep working at it, where I think a lot of these guys get a little burnt out by that time. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And you mentioned, you mentioned uh, going to college and, and perfecting your craft there. I wonder why you chose to go to, to Duke. For me, it was a, it was a great balance of uh, great academics, great athletics, and we also had, had fun. Their motto is work hard, play hard. And we had a good golf team. We were always like top 20. We were never a top five, like a dominant golf team, but we got to play in a lot of big tournaments. And I mean, my year was some great players. Charles Howells, my year, Lucas Glover, and DJ Trahan. Bryce Mulder was four-time All-American, was my age. The ACC, Bill Haas, Webb Simpson was right behind us. They're, like, it's just a great region there in the southeast that time and just had some great battles and some, some great memories but that's where i started being able to see what a year-round golf schedule could look like different types of grasses travel what it's like being on your own and when i graduated i wasn't i don't think i was good enough to, to give the professional thing a try but also had nothing else to do and i wanted to see what i could do so what would ensue would be six years of, of mini tour chasing and scrubbing clubs at Kierland Golf Club here in Phoenix and caddying up at Whisper Rock, where I'm now a member up in North Scottsdale and just doing whatever I had to take to continue to practice and continue to, to play better and save a few dollars to get into tournaments. And I just slowly got better, just slowly kept working on it, getting better. And then by the time I turned 26, 27, I'd say I got pretty good and started winning those many tour events and really felt ready to, to get through Q school. And I did there on my sixth try in 2007. So I've been out there since 14 years later. So you're talking about a roughly eight year period, nine year period between the time that you finished high school, chose Duke. You were, of course, recruited to play golf at Duke. And when you entered Duke, you wouldn't have known you'd become a professional golfer. I wouldn't think maybe you had ambitions of it, but you wouldn't yeah. have had any guarantee. And so that eight year period must have been quite a struggle in many ways. The Duke time is amazing. It's a ton of fun. You get your golf balls for free, you get golf clubs that you need sure. and all all of a sudden, when you graduate, all that stuff's gone. It's my, I was in my mom's Nissan Altima, broke down on the side of the road in the middle of the night one time, like just crazy stories, but stuff you got to do to get better at your craft. And it's really just any craft, really. I mean, clearly, doctors got to work their tail off when they get started. You got to pass your Series 7 to get onto Wall Street. Like it's, you have to work your tail off to get to the top levels. And so that was all part of my process. And I just was fortunate to have people along the way who just, stepped up in huge ways to help me out. And I never, ever forget how great some people were along the way for me. Guys like Graham Gaines and Tim St. John and Jim Coker. And I stayed in people's houses. I stayed at barbecues with their families. I drank beer with them in the backyard, but sometimes the tears are out of money. And other times they had a great finish and made 10,000 bucks and thought I was the richest guy in the world. Like it's just the, the memories of those times build the building blocks of the gratitude I have now and what I've been mm. able to accomplish on the tour and where I've, where I've been and where I continue to be in the global golf stage. But if it wasn't for those early moments, I don't who knows what would have happened. But. And, and what I like, if I may say so, Kevin, so much is that not only do you have that gratitude, but you also pay it forward. And you've been doing great work with your platform as a professional golfer. And so I'd like to ask you a few questions about that, if that's all right with you. Actually, I, I want to start this by talking about uh, your partner in the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro and Larry Fitzgerald, because he also is known in the sports world as a great human being, as well as a great athlete. 
And I wonder, it seems like from what I've read, you have a, quite a, a, a close relationship with him. And what can you say about Larry and the kind of person that he is? An absolute class act. Mm. Handles his life, his business, his, his football, and now his golf dealings. It's getting that way with the clubs he's joined and the people he's met with integrity and class and sincerity. The one story I tell people about Larry, when we won our first AT&T Pebble Beach program together, Mm-hmm. We ran immediately to Spyglass and played an extra 18 holes afterwards, which I did not want to partake in, but he loved golf so much and was so like excited we were still on the peninsula that he wanted to play more golf before he flew out that night. A and B, two months later, the, the trophy goes to the amateur. So he gets a big, beautiful crystal trophy from the AT&T Pebble Beach Peninsula Foundation. What do you and, get? Uh, nothing. You, you, get a, <laughs> you get a couple extra bucks in, in a, in a check, which is nice. It, it okay, okay. $2,000 more than your check. It's not a, it's not even as much as finishing a place higher, but it's a couple thousand bucks. It's, it's okay. nice to get that for sure. Sure. But this trophy is probably a $7,500 trophy, I would guess. Two months later on my front doorstep, this huge box, like I have to get a nail, like the, the, pull out the nails from the back. Like I'd never done that before. I'm like trying to open this box and it's a replica crystal trophy that he paid for out of his own pocket so that wow. I, could, I could have a trophy as well as him. And that just says the type of character and the type of man he is. I'm honored to be his friend. We talk a ton of trash. He's a great <laughs> crafter. He, what he's been able to accomplish in seven, eight years in the game to be able to join clubs like Seminole and Spring Hill and Whisper. It just doesn't happen to, to most, because those aren't clubs that get you in because you're Larry Fitzgerald. Those are clubs you get in because you're a kind and generous and giving back person. And that's sure. the reason he gets into those clubs. And then because he's Larry Fitzgerald, it just makes it that much greater. But the, it starts with who you are as a person. And that's what's I'm so proud of him and so happy for him too. Because I know the next 40 years, 50 years of his life are going to be a blast from, from a lot of the people he's met through the AT&T. I've had a, had a big part in that. Guys like Jimmy Dunn and um, just who have, have brought him under their wings and, and just they know what a type of guy he is and how much fun he is to be around. And, and it really opened up some incredible uh, doors in his life. And, and it's just honestly just happy for him. So. Thank you for sharing that, Kevin. And speaking of football, I, I know, and, and everybody knows football is the biggest spectator sport in the U.S., but of course, golf is very big, too, and a big tournament can draw tens of thousands of fans. So I'm curious what you think it is about watching golf that's so alluring to fans. It's, it's probably just the battle of seeing the struggles that we can have, because everyone can relate. Mm-hmm. Everyone can, you know, literally, I, I will never know what it's like to get hit going across the middle by a 270 pound corner as you are trying to get somebody across the middle. But you know, you can, you probably hit a six or seven iron that just flush from 180 yards. It lands on the pin and maybe hits the stair. But like you, as amateur golfers, we all have that opportunity and professionals do that. And you say, man, it, we're, we do it a little more regularly, but you guys can still do it. Amateurs can still do it and still enjoy it. And then also they see the struggle. You see me shanking a shot, going at, going at a hole or, or flipping one, the wind grabs it, goes out of bounds. And it's like, yeah, we were related to that because amateurs have done that as well. So I think it's the relativity to an understanding of that the game always wins and seeing how we handle that too. And, I, and the other cool thing is we have a hundred over 220 people on tour, but you can pick who you root for. It's like, it's 220 individual teams that you can root for. Say, oh, I really like that guy. 
maybe I don't like that guy so much. I root against them. Like you have all these internal battles that change every Sunday on tour leaderboards. And it's just fun. It's just fun. There's about 54 countries, I think, represented on the PGA Tour now. And so it's just getting a global global viewership. The gambling is taking things up to a whole nother degree. And we've done, I think it's great for the game and it's been great for other sports and brings a lot of excitement. And it's been a fun, it's been fun to be a part of it and, and to see the evolution of it. But it's turned into a global game. It's turned into a youth game. And golf became cool. Let's be honest. Tiger made it cool in 1997 when he won the Masters. And yes. I, that's when I graduated high school and I got made fun of for playing golf when I was in high school. Is that right? And football buddies who were really good football players and now they've got bad knees and they all play golf now and they wish they'd, they'd played golf when I played golf instead of playing footballs. But it all changed in 97. And now these young kids are coming up who are 6'2", 6'3", 6'5", who are, would have played baseball or football, and now they've gotten into golf, and all of a sudden the athletic level has just changed drastically. So that's what's that's what's shown this influx of youth and strength and height and speed, and it's all changing. Yes, it sounds like it. And going back to the question of these fans, it seems to me that fans in a number of the big-time sports in the U.S., including golf, are so dedicated, right? They drive long distances to see their favorite athletes. In some cases, are willing to spend a ton of money um, on merchandise and all that kind of stuff to prove their faith. And in some cases, people paint their face and do other things like that. Now, I've never seen a golf fan paint their face, but I, I don't suspect that they're any less passionate than football fans or, or any other groups. I wonder what you think. Do you think golf fans are faithful fans? I do. 100%. Yeah. It's fun. It is fun seeing the different arenas, right? Where we just came from, the British Open, are, it's always considered like the most respectful, knowledgeable fans that we have in, in the game of golf. My 71st hole in the Open, I had a terrible drive into the super thick rough, hacked it out into a bunker, have 60 yards. It's impossible. I was just trying to make bogey and get out of there. I catch the nine iron from 60 yards out of a bunker, upslope to a back pin. I hit it to 35 feet. But I honestly, it was a tremendous golf shot to hit it to 35. Now, if that was just like the Phoenix Open where everyone's just having fun and partying, I wouldn't have got a roar or anything. The place went crazy when I hit the green with this bunker shot. And then I make the putt for par. And the play is, I just won the tournament practically. Like the, the respect and understanding of how difficult about the down that was. And then to make it happen on Sunday, like the place just went bonkers. And so the it's fun to be in that I said arena again, but it's fun to be in that uh, spectacle and to have fans that really understand the difficulty of the Lynx golf and what's going on. And then you, like, you fast forward a few months and we're going to be in Phoenix Open. There's going to be 100, 180,000 people there on Saturday was the last recorded I think, hmm. uh, population that they had there. And it's just a complete party out there. And so everyone's drinking too much and everyone's having fun. But, it, but in the same time, it's fun to be in that place as well because – of the energy and you're not everyone's going to be as nice and respectful in that moment <laughs> British Open or they would be at Augusta where it's just the same feeling as the British but I love going to these different places and educating the fans but just participating with them and just being in our space in different parts of the world and seeing how it all goes down but it is noticeable going from one to another I can say that and I think I read somewhere the Open is your favorite tournament is that correct I think it's, I think it's the greatest tournament in golf. Mm. I really do. I think a number of guys would say that as well. And, and all the majors are, I haven't played in a Ryder Cup. I, I know a number of guys would say a Ryder Cup is. Uh, a number of guys would say Augusta 
obviously the Masters is, but the Masters to me would be right there, one or two. But the, the Open Championship, it's the global golf tournament. You, there are fans that could be from South Africa. The hardest part of this last year's British, we weren't allowed to go into the town. We weren't allowed to sit down at the pub and have a pint and have a oh, no. with, the, with the fans just because of COVID concerns. So we had to breakfast, lunch, dinner at the course. And just was, that was a shame, but it was necessary. But normally it's the best part of the tournament is going down to the town, sitting next to people from Japan. There's people from South Africa. There's people from Canada. It's just, it's the global golf event of the year. And it's just a ton of fun being in the middle of all that energy. And next year at St. Andrews, it, it bummed me out. I missed top 15 gets you in next year. I finished 19th, which was one shot out of T15, which would have got me exempt for sure for next year. So a little more inspiration to keep playing well and get back. But St. Andrews, 150th Open Championship next year is going to be, pending all this COVID mess is done, it's going to be the most epic championship of all time. The birthplace of golf. I, I actually walked that course with a cigar way back when I was 20 years old. I was studying in London at the time, and I took a trip up to Scotland to see some friends. I, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's magical. It is. I can't imagine what it's like to actually play it and play it well, but that's fantastic. So I know that you're guided by a deep religious faith, and I know that religion is deeply personal and sometimes private for some. But if I may ask, you know, what role do you think your faith plays in your life and in your work? I try to make it number one in every facet of my life. And that's the whole goal of Christianity, to be honest. It's it's to make Christ and what he did and the freedom that's promised through a relationship with him, the paramount of all your relationships. And it's in that placement, the, the freedom comes from living the rest of your life, like amazingly clean and free and just free of concern because of the understanding of what he took on for us. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm not perfect at it. And I think the deeper you get into your faith, you realize how broken and in need of a savior you are. And it's in that brokenness where we're on our knees praying or we're, we're just in tears of, of what loss we have on this earth of the understanding of the promise of coming in the next one. And there's freedom there that can't be taken away. Because if you believe he beat death and changed eternity forever, all of a sudden, what can be taken of you of this earth that matters? I just say a big moment, too, is just as a PGA Tour, winning my first PGA Tour, night, like it was my dream of my life. It was the pinnacle, right? It was it. And they give me the trophy. And as I'm talking to the fans in Tampa, all of a sudden, I see the workers pulling down the signs. Like they're sort of breaking down the whole deal. Like those guys girls couldn't care less what I said or what I just accomplished or what I'd done. But it was in that moment. I was like, no, I did this. This is supposed to be my moment, blah, blah, blah. And it just hit me so hard. I was like, that trophy was so much, it's so insignificant to what I thought it would be in my life. Like I thought that would complete me. I thought it would be full, but the next week everyone's trying to beat your brains in again on the mm. golf anyway. And it just, man, if my identity is wrapped into what this thing is and now sits somewhere collecting dust it's going to be a short existence and so that's what i tell a lot of kids and people i talk to if your identity is wrapped in something that can be taken away from you in a split second when it does get taken away from you in a split second it's going to have a real sad outcome and that's where my heart breaks for these olympic athletes and what we talked about earlier with mental difficulties is if your identity is wrapped in what that gold medal does or bring if you don't get it you're going to can be, can, you're going to consider yourself a, a failure. And that's just a sad place to live from because you're living in the future, which is fear of an outcome. 
or you're living in the past, which is your ego and what you've accomplished. And you're not enjoying the presence of your moment and the greatness that comes and the gratitude that comes from just living right now, living in this conversation, living in there. None of that other stuff matters. And so it's a shame. It just, it, it bums me out the, the relativity of social media, that how important it's become to people and, and, it just, it seems to take away from people's ability to just be present and where they are in their moments with their families, with their friends in sport in competition. And I just know from the bottom of my heart, if you can be there, if these athletes can be there in the Olympics, just be there, they can be great because they've already trained it. They've already done the work. I'm, I'm not gonna drop a name, but I play a lot of golf with Michael Phelps here in, mm-hmm. and we've become great friends. And he talks about, he knew he was going to win those medals. He knew he was going to win all those before he even stepped up to the blocks. Hmm. He had trained his tail off. He knew what the other guys were going to swim. He knew what he was going to swim and he knew he was better than them. And all of a sudden it wasn't about the gold. It wasn't about, that was all stuff later. It was like performing in the moment of what he had prepared for. And then greatness happens. Hmm. Worried about that gold at the end. If you don't get there, you're going to really be tough on yourself. And it's just, that's when all the crazy things can happen. All of a sudden we talk, start talking about depression and suicide and, and just terrible things that, that, that just break your heart. And so my faith gives me an identity in something much bigger than whatever the silly game is. And it gives me uh, peace to know that honestly, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it grounds you as well. It keeps you in the moment and, and, and present and is it is that prayer that keeps you in the moment or is it something else it's spiritual maturity i'd say mm-hmm. prayer is 100 percent a big part of that it's checking yourself daily it's checking your yeah it's really checking into your yourself and what's important to your heart daily and looking at what those idols are is it my golf score is it my golf swing is it people think of me on social media is it my money list mm-hmm. number is it my world ranking number or is it how my kids look at or is it the time spent with them when I'm home, being very present with them when I'm home versus checking my phone or whatever my sponsors need me to do or whatnot. It's, it's being the type of husband I want to be when I'm on the road. And when you know people come up to you in restaurants or bars where you're at with friends, how do you handle those situations? Like it's, it's a maturity that comes with being put into many situations, situational for sure. But it always comes back to me to put my faith in is in and what he did for us and my belief in that moment and all of a sudden everything else finds its its place very interesting thank you kevin i really appreciate you you answering so candidly and um i wonder about the values that you have as a christian and how they compare to the values that you carry as a golfer is there a similarity is there any difference where did you learn them as well sorry i'd say it's just that making what that number one priority is what it is it's really easy to be grateful, kind, giving, caring when you've won golf tournaments that year or made three, four, five million dollars and you go out to restaurants and people recognize you and everything's going well. Like it's really easy to be a great guy. But that's not where we learn. It's our valley. It's our darkest, deepest part. It's when we've lost a tour card or lost, missed 10 cuts in a row or golf swing field lost or maybe someone in the family's sick. Like it's those moments where you need to go to a certain place and where do you go to? It's the answer. Is it, is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Self? Is it quick fix? But those 
or if, if when you can go to the same person in the same place and those highs and those lows, man, that's, that is freedom to me. That is freedom to me because there's nothing that can knock you down. Mm. Okay, I lost my tour card. Okay, that's God's plan for me today, this year. That I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with it. I don't know if Russell Henley is a dear friend of mine. He's a new believer, and we have become dear friends. And he inspired me. Gosh, I'll never forget. We're in Mayakoba last year, and he was about to lose his tour card. This year, he's killing it. Like he is having a great year. I think he's top thirty in FedEx, maybe top 40, 50 in the world. He's killing it. And he was about to lose his tour card. Which to us is that's our job, right? As soon as you finish 126 or higher, you're going to struggle to get back into full exempt status on the tour. Mm-hmm. He was back 160, 170, and he was like a new believer. And he, I'll never forget, he's sitting there and he's like, "Gosh, this has been the greatest professional year of my life." I think my wife and I are just sweet right now. My children are just sweet right now. He's like, "Golf, it hasn't been sweet, but you know what? It hasn't affected me like I thought it would. It's like this year has been the most. I've learned a ton. I've." I just he kept using the word how, how sweet the year had been and how he was like 175th on the money list. It just it hit me how spiritually mature that sounded. And not only spiritually mature, but just life mature and just inspirational. I was like, I want to be around that guy. Like I want to spend time with meals with him. I want to be friends with him. Like all of a sudden you realize how much more important that stuff is than, than the money list stuff. Mm-hmm. It just ebbs and flows and comes and goes. But friendship, faith, love companionship like, like that's the good stuff I mean, that's the stuff we take that stuff that's eternal like the only mm-hmm. thing you can take with us after we die is, is friends that's so right that back your mind is is a pretty darn cool thing to keep in mind out here we're saying if you make 140 grand or something and if you're 250 grand or something else if you make a million or something else like that's just it's crazy when you look at it yeah that guy's been a, been a real rock for me and, and a great friend thank you kevin and it's occurred to me many times that fans, they get some kind of thrill by leaving their real lives and getting to watch great athletes do great things. And maybe, as you say, getting too drunk at the Phoenix Open or something like that. There's a lot of escape that happens through sports. But it does sound to me like your faith allows you or affords you the power within yourself to ground yourself, to stay present in that moment, to be grateful um, for what you have and what you're doing, regardless of what it is, whether you're winning the tournament or or not. And are, are those values that you learned through the church or through your family or both? And if so, when was the, was it this Tampa Open that you won? Was that the moment that you really, you thought to yourself, okay, pursuing the, the top of the leaderboard and pursuing the money, that's not what it's about? Or was there a different moment in your life where you um, had realization? I wouldn't say it was, it was a definitive moment. I would say it's clearly life lessons and maturity and spending time in uncomfortable situations and how you handle those and say, okay, I don't want to do that next time. Okay. I do want to do this next time. This was okay. I really screwed up here. Okay. I was proud of this. Like just life lessons of who you want to become as a man changes our journey. I will say before that one moment that always jumps out of me was Ben Crane speaking at the 2014 travelers Championship the week before I won. And like I said, I'd missed five cuts in a row going into that. I was really in a bad place. We just had our daughter, which was amazing. But yet I was bringing home too much golf. Courtney was not happy with me. She's like, you need to go to this study. And Ben Crane spoke. He had just won in Memphis a few uh, weeks before. And at our studies, they let the guy who spoke kind of share some things around his heart. He had just made, said similar things to his some friends cornered him and said the same things that I'm saying here as far as golf had become too important in his life. 
and mm-hmm. wasn't the friend to these guys that he knows he should be. And they put some scripture on his heart, his first Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. It says, rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks regardless of your circumstances. That's God's will for you through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, I was really good at giving thanks when things are going well, mm. but I'm not, but I, but I wasn't when they weren't. And for that week, I was completely in a place of gratitude and thankfulness for being on the PGA tour for that time. I was outside of 125 and I had won the year before. So I was still exempt for the next year. So I was grateful for that exemption. And all of a sudden what I did Sunday happens out of nowhere, totally truly because of my mindset for, for that week. And it all started in, in what Ben spoke that day. That's what I always come back to. Is I, I just feel gratitude and, and thankfulness is a, is a real secret to, to joy in this world. And it's whether you have a lot or whether not, it's, it doesn't really matter. It's what you think of what you have. And I think it's just a great place to start life from. It's what I try and instill my children. And, and it's what I try and instill my wife. <laughs> she keeps me uh, grounded more than anybody. And so I'm just thankful for that. And it just makes you enjoy this journey a lot more when you're thankful for the, the tough times as well as the, the good ones. It's easy to be thankful for the good ones, but true mature folk are thankful for the bad times. And mm-hmm. uh, it's what makes you grow. It makes you better. It's what makes you richer. It makes you sweeter to not fear storms, but to enjoy the, the, the journey through them. And that's what I'm working on. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's been a big factor of this year in my life is getting to 42 on the PGA tour where the average age is now in the twenties. It's not that I don't care anymore. It's just that it's in its proper place. And I'm having fun. I'm like talking trash with me. They're out driving me by 25 yards, but then I knock my seven iron inside of their wedge and just like let them know about it. And they get, they laugh and I laugh. Like I'm enjoying that part right now. When it's over, it'll be over and I'm fine with that. And when it's great, I'm fine with that. But that allows me to be great at what I do. And that's, what's allowed me to, do what I did this summer in, in the majors and who knows what the future holds. As I said, I'm going to try and keep the, the same mature attitude going forward. Thank you, Kevin. And I've read that you've done a lot of great work in spreading this gratitude to other people and, and helping the those folks who are less fortunate. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners more about that work and if possible, what role that religious faith has in that work. A big thing that I want my uh, legacy on the PGA tours is an event called game day that I've developed with FCA over the last 10, 11 years. And it's basically an event where we bring out kids on a Tuesday to tour events, 40, 50 kids, ages, usually five to 15 and first come first serve. They're welcome to come. We get them tickets. The tournaments are great about them coming. And we just play nine holes on a Tuesday. I'll grab another Cameron Tringali or Russell Henley or Zach Johnson and Ben Crane used to do it. whoever wants to do it. And we just play nine holes. The kids will come in the ropes a little bit, let them carry the bag, we'll have them hit a putt or two here or there. And we just, we have fun and we just show them that we're just normal human beings that just <laughs> love the game as they love the game. And we sit down for a Q&A after. We just spend about 20, 30 minutes answering questions. And at the end of it, we, we share our hearts, we share our faith journey. And, and we just say, hey, this is who we are and this is why we are who we are. And we just want to show love to other people. And that's it. And that's been, I didn't know at the time if we would have one of them or if it would last one year. Before COVID, obviously, it was a rough year with game day last year. But we had, I think we had 11 or 12 on the PGA Tour in 2019. We had a few on the Champions Tour. And we actually had one on the LPGA and Corn Ferry Tour as well. So to see that grow into that from just an idea I had of, of not wanting kids to look at us with ideological eyes, 
Mm -hmm. I wanted those eyes to be placed elsewhere in the creator who I felt they should be. And I just said, when we started, if this helps one kid get to know who Jesus is and was, um, it's all worth it to me. And the, the stories, the letters we've gotten, the emails since have just been the coolest part of my profession, to be honest. So that's been a really neat, neat thing that I've been involved with the last uh, 11 years. And then it, about four years ago, 49, it was on our hearts to get involved with compassion mm-hmm. and international. Oh my goodness. Just talk about people who go into the poorest of the poor areas throughout Africa, throughout the far East, who've I mean, really struggled through COVID clearly this last uh, 18 months or so, but they go in and build, basically try and get the kids sponsors and get kids, families, some necessary money, some necessary medical needs primarily to you know, get get their lives on track. And it's all done in with a faith-based background. And it's what we do is just help with some monetary things. Like it's nothing compared to what these wonderful people do and missionaries go across to, to step into these cultures, build community centers, give them a safe place to escape, you know, to escape kidnapping, to escape a lot of sexual deviant behavior, like just a safe place where they can get medical attention, have their children safe places. Like it's just the things we take for granted in our, in our world to these poor third world countries. And, and so we've helped in a, in a few different communities, build the community centers, helping some kids get sponsored. We just had one of the Philippines we did in Courtney's grandmother's name. She's from the Philippines and wanted to do a building for her there. And so we have another one going up in the Philippines. And it's the very, very least we can do is, is to give back and to help those that can't help themselves necessarily and give them a, a means to go forward and to do it all in the, in the, in the name of the Lord is, is perfect to me. And compassion has been awesome. Let alone their rating as a charitable organization is one of the highest out there. I think it's like 92 to 94% of their funds go to their works, which is way higher than... <laughs> most charities to be honest they're great people i've gotten to know them well and that's what the future holds that's great thank you kevin and was hanging on the the point you make about it being the least you can do from what i've read that doesn't describe you at all because i understand that in 2015 there was a young man who had an inoperable brain tumor i think his name was ethan couch and from what i read you reached out to the make-a-wish foundation to connect with ethan and you could have just given him a a badge to the Masters Tournament, which was his goal, or his uh, dream, I should say. But you did more than that. And I, I wanted, wonder if you could speak to how that yeah. incident came about and why you did it. Well, you talk about another like moment of clarity as far as things being bigger than me and things that happen for a reason and a, and a higher power. I, I'd never worked with Make-A-Wish before then. It was my fifth Masters I was playing in. I'd had at the Part 3 Tournament, we can choose who we want to carry our bag. And so... My first one, I had my dad. My second one, I had my mom carry for me. Third one, Courtney caddied for me. And the fourth one, my father-in-law caddied for me. And it just was on my heart to call Makerish. And I looked out of the blue, I Googled it. It happened to be a, a 480 number, which is here in Phoenix, which I didn't know they were located here. And called Makerish. I said, my name's Kevin Strowman. I play golf. And I don't know if there's any kids that have a wish to come to Augusta, but I'm playing in the tournament next April. If there's anyone who'd like to come, I'd love for them to come carry for me and caddy for me in the park return. And they were just like, oh my gosh, are you serious? I said, absolutely. <laughs> so he said, yes, we do have a number of children who would love to go. Ethan is at the top of our list. He has an inoperable brain tumor. He lives up in Alberta, Canada. Could you? I go, perfect. Give me his number. I'll, I'll, let's make it happen. And so I 
few days later, I'm on the phone with his mother. Day after that, I set up a time for me to talk with Ethan and surprise him. And it was unbelievable. It truly was a moment where the phone dropped and he started crying and his mom started crying and I started crying. And, mm. and so fast forward to that April and I wasn't putting that well that week. And so I, I randomly, the, the part three tournaments Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, I'm playing the back nine with Steve Stricker, who's the best putter of all time. I go, Strick, you mind just looking at my putter? He says like one little thing on the 17th green. It's on the 17th green, I'll never forget it. And I'm still like, oh, that feels pretty good. Go play 18. Ethan and his family are waiting there. We get him in, we get his white jumpsuit on, and they introduce him to like, remember Jason Day and Rory and Phil. I introduce him to all the guys. They're so great with him. You go to the first hole, I make a 15-footer for birdie. I make a seven-footer for birdie. Next, I make an eight-footer for birdie. I birdie the seventh hole, and I think I birdie the ninth hole. And end up winning the par three tournament with Ethan Caddy. Like, it just, it, it couldn't happen on, like, I didn't do that. 100%. I didn't, that wasn't me. Like, like, it was part of a bigger plan, and that was Ethan's day that day. And we want, and it just, gosh, Mike Tirico's giving him the trophy and he's crying. I'm crying. Like, it just, it was a, it's such a sweet, talk about present, sweet moment. And the best news of it all, Ethan is going to college this year. He's had some great treatment on his brain tumor and they're not sure it's going to affect his, his life. They think he's going to make it through this just fine. And so that's obviously the best news of it all. But that was probably... That day there beats Travelers and beats Tampa and beats anything I've done on grass. I'll say that. Mm. And like I said, it wasn't about me. It really wasn't. I was just a, a pawn in, in the plan for that day for Ethan. But gosh, it was fun to, it's probably my favorite memory. You may have been a pawn, Kevin, but you still deserve to be applauded for it. And so I'll do that. And I would also say, it sounds to me from talking to you that and I know you've mentioned it briefly before, but it, it certainly seems like your identity as a human being is not just as a professional golfer. And so I wonder, you know, if you can speak to that and sum it up for our listeners. I really hope it isn't. I want to, it, it goes so fast as we know this life. And now to think I'm 42 with two kids and now it's in us too, Red is starting kindergarten. So Courtney's about to get her, her full days back, which I'm thrilled for her because she's been such a great mother. And she is such a great mother these last seven years, but now she'll finally get her eight hours a day, which she deserves. And I, I just want to enjoy each day and each week, each tournament, each opportunity as much as possible and enjoy the journey from a place of surrender. And if that allows me to, I, I believe that allows me to play much better golf in my profession, but it also affords me the knowledge that even if it doesn't, that I'm going to lose a lot less sleep over it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to rest in that the rest of the days I have on this earth and try and instill it in my children and my family, and my friends and people I come in contact to as much as possible hopefully from a loving, generous place at all times and just enjoy whatever the plan is for me because gosh, it goes fast. And the kids are going to be <laughs> moving on before I know it. So I'm just trying to enjoy these sweet children. Thank you, Kevin. And the last question I ask every guest that I have on the show is, is about this idea of the power of sports, which I think can mean so many different things to different people. But I, I wonder if I can ask you what you think the power of sports and maybe specifically the power of golf is. To you. I look at it from probably two different ways. Selfishly, as I mentioned earlier, I love competition. I love being in the heat of the moment, fans going crazy, the TV cameras on, 
It's not even about money at that moment or even about the trophy at that moment. It's just, it's just being in that moment of energy with someone else and saying, man, I'm the, I've trained my tail off for the last 35 years of my life and I'm going to hit a great shot right now. And sometimes it's a great shot. And guess what? Sometimes it's not. But I love that moment when the club hits the ball and you just right before they go crazy or what, whether you accomplished it. And gosh, I, I just love that about the game. I really do. It's so much. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm out with buddies here at Whisprock playing for 20 bucks or something, or whether it's the British Open getting that up and down in the 71st hole. Like that, it's really the, I'm the same guy in those moments. Like I'm putting the same amount of effort into my shots, but I just, I love that battle. I love the trash talk. I love the fun. I just enjoy the game of golf. And as far as the power of sport for me, it's just, I feel very blessed to play something. I adore it. I really adore it. And then I also believe it's a responsibility as someone who's been blessed with talent in that level to give back to the next generation and to give back to the youth, to give back to my children, to give back to their friends, to teach them things that I've had along the way. And then also you got to let them go to figure things out on their own. There's so many parallels to life as there is to this game. Um, as now my son, I don't think my daughter's going to be a golfer. She's more into princesses and reading and music right now, but my son just loves it. And to, to see it in his eye when he hits that good shot and to see his anger too when he doesn't and to just see myself in that person and to hopefully just help him and guide him along that journey, but yet at the same time, allow him to go and figure out some the tough parts as well is, gosh, it's awesome. And it's awesome. I'm sure you as a, as a teacher have the same feelings. You, you, know, you see your different students and you know, this one's going to get it. And this one's going to need a little more work, but That's you're right. still going to enjoy, you're going to enjoy like that battle getting to each of them in their own ways and, and um, setting them on their way. And I don't know, I don't know what the future holds, whether I start my own academy, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's, I'd love to work with juniors and good players. I really enjoy that. The hardest part for me is just leaving my family for 30 weeks a year. And they've traveled with me. And now we're just getting to a point where activities and school and other things where they can't. And so what my next step looks like, I don't know. But like I said, I'm going to trust someone who does. And that frees me up to just enjoy where I'm at now. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. I I really appreciate it. I've learned a ton. And I know that you have a very busy schedule. So it means a lot to me that you've made the time for for this show. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. You have a wonderful day. And say thank you to your wife, please, for setting this up. show today. It was a great pleasure to speak to Kevin and learn about his unique way of keeping a competitive edge by living in the moment and keeping his perspective. Many thanks to him and to his wife, Courtney Streelman, for helping us coordinate a time to make this show possible. I also want to express my gratitude to Chris Herpick for connecting me to Kevin and for making sure that all of us fellow dads in the area have a rotating top to keep us sane. Cheers, Chris, and here's hoping we can finally play around together one of these years. Who knows, maybe it'll happen before the boys go to college. I sure hope so. And to the rest of you, my listeners, thank you very much again for listening and have a great day.